The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. This is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And uh, the big news over the last week or so is the announcement of the Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor boxing match, one of the biggest matches of all time. But before that, before MMA at all, there was the boxing match, the boxer versus wrestler match that basically invented sports entertainment and was the dawn of MMA. I'm talking about Muhammad Ali versus Antonio Inoki on June 26, 1976 at the Budokan Arena in Tokyo, Japan. We are just days away from the 41st anniversary of the legendary match. And that's why I've got sports journalist and author Josh Gross on the show today. Josh wrote the book Ali vs. Anoki, the forgotten fight that inspired mixed martial arts and launched sports entertainment. An in-depth look at the famous fight. It's now available on Amazon.com uh, now. I uh, read the book uh, a few months ago. Very, very well done. It's an amazing, interesting, riveting story. Josh is going to tell us all about it, share some of the fascinating details he uncovered while doing research for the book, including Vince McMahon's role in the fight, the original finish, and why it changed why fans and critics hated it at the time but before we get to ali versus anoki what a great story this is i've only got a couple matches left with the wwe uh now right now we're going to finish up this run officially i'm headed to singapore june 28th then on to japan tokyo i love japan rogoku sumo arena doing a couple shows june 30th and july 1st and then uh who knows when i'll be back in the wwe you never know with chris jericho i could be there july 2nd it might be uh not until next year who knows but uh i'm doing a lot of other stuff just finished the show uh for the travel channel uh based on the uh searching for the hidden gold of Butch Cassidy. I'll tell you when that's going to drop. And I'm doing uh, some more shows with Fozzie. I got uh, other stuff to record and film. It's going to be a really busy summer for Chris Jericho as well as some great family time. Uh, but we are uh, doing another Fozzie show. It's pain in the grass tomorrow in Seattle at the White River Amphitheater. Come rock and roll with us if you're in Seattle with Corn, Stone Sour, Pretty Reckless, a lot of great bands. Uh, and thanks to all of you for being so, uh, so ardent on the Judas tip. Uh, we have just cracked the Billboard top 40 at number 39 we're on the rock radio charts at number 37 we're on hard drive radio uh in a, a smash or crash uh, battle with uh, nickelback we're beating them 96 to 4 96 <laughs> percent to 4 percent uh, sorry nickelback uh the, the uh, single is still in the top 10 in the metal charts still in the top 100 on the rock charts uh, enough talking more rocking let's play judas right now here talk is jericho
beautiful on the inside You are innocence personified And I will drag you down and sell you out Run away I am cold like December snow so much for all of you who have uh, bought the single who have listened to it the streams are over 3 million which is crazy and um, the video 
for Judas has been viewed uh, over five and a half million times. It'll probably be six million by the time uh, by the time next week rolls around. So thanks to all of you. Thanks for supporting Fozzie. And if you're in the UK and in Europe, uh, dates for the Judas Rising uh, European tour have been announced, uh, starting on October 27th in Birmingham. Then we go Dublin, Belfast, Chester, Manchester, London, Sheffield, Glasgow, Newcastle. Then we head on over to the uh, to the mainland, Amsterdam, Aschenberg. Uh, I know I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I apologize. We're in Germany. Please help me. What, how do you pronounce the name of the venue and the city that we're playing on on November 8th? Aschenberg? Uh, I don't know. Pratel, Switzerland on my birthday, November 9th. Roncade, Italy. Rome, Vienna. Munich, Essen, Hamburg, Genk, a lot of great rock and roll shows coming up. We're doing VIP meet and greets before every show, doing a little mini concert for all you rockers. Uh, You get to meet us and hang out. Fozzie VIP experience is one of the best in the business. Get your tickets at FozzieRock.com. Come see the show. Come rock out with us. It's going to be amazing. And the Fozzie record, the the full Fozzie record, will be out in September. Got more news coming up about that pretty soon. But first, I want to talk more about Josh Gross. He's coming up to talk about Ali versus Anoki. Talk is Jericho. All right, so uh, here in, in the office of uh, Josh Gross, who has written this amazing book, uh, Inoki versus, sorry, Ali versus Inoki. Ali first, Ali versus Inoki, talking about um, something a very monumental uh, time uh, in the '70s of basically Ali versus Inoki. This pro wrestling versus boxing uh, kind of changed the course of, of fighting history. Josh, would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, coming here to downtown LA and taking the time to chat with me. I really uh, appreciate it. Not a lot of people can say they had Chris Jericho in their office, right? So I, I feel great about that. Thank you got you. your dogs around here. If they you know, bark yeah. once or twice, don't worry about it. Uh, it's just they're they're guarding the house. Yeah, Chance and Gibson. So I, Chance is going to be good. I think. Okay. I have a, I have Gibson's a the wild. Gibson's the Ali and Chance is the Inoki? It's quite possible. I mean, it depends on which one you thought was more wild. But, right, uh, right. A lot of people might say that Inoki was the more kind of crazy character in some really? ways. Really? I mean, I don't know. I mean, from a Japanese perspective, there's certainly not a lot of people like Inoki, right? Who, well, he's, he's basically, just so you know, and you reference this in your book, and it's a, it's a great book, obviously talking you, about this you. fight that they had. But uh, Inoki is probably one of the most top three or five most famous people in Japanese history. Yeah. Not wrestling. Right. But everything. Yeah. So it would be like, I don't even, maybe, maybe like a Hulk Hogan thing, but even Hulk isn't top five. So it's like Hulk Hogan times, you know, a hundred. That's exactly right. Culture. I mean, um, you know, I knew some pro wrestling being a kid of the eighties, right? I mean, I grew up, watching the cartoons on Saturday morning and Captain Lou Albano and, you know, rock and wrestling, of course. And like the first WrestleManias, you know, and I had a, one of my closest friends, like we, he made like a fake belt and we would do the whole thing. I mean, what kids do. And then, um, I kind of grew out of my pro wrestling fandom, but, um, in researching the book and being around it, I have, uh, an immense, uh, amount of respect for the business now in terms of its influence on, because you weren't a pro wrestling f- I was fan not even a fan. Se. Like I wouldn't hardly an aficionado, not a historian. I, I'm a journalist who's focused on combat sports my entire career, who was a kid of the 80s, new pro wrestling, new pro wrestling figures, but didn't really pay much attention to it as I got older. I think like the last time I really paid attention to it was the rock and like stone cold steve austin when you i remember the day you came early to, 2000s the day you 90s, showed up yeah. to the wwe mm-hmm. i remember that like that sort of stuff so um i didn't realize the historical significance of pro wrestling on on combat sports and if i did hear it from guys like dave Meltzer and things i sort of dismissed it so when he when i in the research for this book dave is one of the people i spoke to amongst other pro wrestling people and the way they described Inoki was the rock hulk hogan and the stone cold 
times 10 mm. in Japan. He is, uh, even today at the age of 74, he is one of the most famous faces in Japan. Absolutely. People of any generation will know what he looks like and say, Enoki. They'll know that. It's something that we, that we talk about, or Ali talks about quite a bit in the build-up of the fight, is his pelican jaw. Right. He's got a very big, yeah. pronounced, almost a Jay Leno type of a, of a face, where he's, it's okay, where he's very, uh, he doesn't look like a lot of other Japanese people. He looks like a strong character, strong fighting type of a guy. Yeah, no question. Apparently, if you believe people close to him, like Simon Inoki, who's his son-in-law, you know, that's Trey kind of found half his family, Inoki's family, that mm. uh, you see that. But, you know, there was a lot of questions and mystery about Inoki. Where is he from originally? Is he really Japanese? Like Ricky Dozan, is he, is he from... Korean. Yeah, or even North Korean. Mm. Um, he spent this time in Japan, in Brazil, as, a, as a basically a teenager. Where the where, name Antonio came from. Yeah, where Antonio came from. Yeah. And, uh, you know, where he sort of flourished as an athlete athlete and where the legend is that Ricky Dozan found him. And Ricky Dozan, of course, is the father of Japanese pro wrestling right. and is historical figure, someone that I was amazed to learn about. He just lived an incredible life. You know, it's interesting. I, I worked for Inoki a few times. Well, actually, let me rephrase that. I worked for New Japan Pro Wrestling, which is was Inoki's company. But long, long ago, he, he basically cut all ties with them, even though he's still, still the face of New Japan, if you don't yeah. really know. He would come to the dressing room a couple times, and he would do this thing where he would like look one of the Japanese guys, young younger guys, young boys, they called him in the eye, and kind of hypnotize him, and then hit him in the head, and the guy would go down. And I remember one time this guy, Nagata, was there, and Inoki came by and hit him in the head, and Nagata kind of acted all weird, and then Inoki walked away, and I go, what happened? He goes, it's a work. It's like, it's, it's not real. But Inoki thinks it's real, so when he comes and oh, does wow. his hypnotizing and hits you in the head... It's for Inoki, huh? You're expected to go down, because like, that's Inoki's presence. Obviously, he knows it's a work, but right. for other people watching, Inoki has this magical spirit yeah. that has control over all Japanese wrestlers. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's kind of got this wizard-type vibe, like a Jedi... He does. Well, He's got know. this burning spirit mantra, right? Mm -hmm. This, I mean, you've seen. Have you ever been slapped by Anoki? Have you I've never been slapped? You by didn't him. have the privilege of being slapped by Antonio. Yeah. A lot of people have. A lot of tough guys have. They've stood there and, and taken a full-on slap from Antonio Noki uh, to speak to his mysticism. I mean, for him, it's a way to transfer his energy into the, the fighting, person. the fighting spirit. They yes. call it transferring his fighting spirit into you. Exactly, and that was all part of the strong style and what New Japan Pro Wrestling was about, and the idea that pro wrestling is a real fighting style. I mean, that was all. That was all. A lot of what Antonio Noki was trying to accomplish. Now go over to the United States, and we've got Muhammad Ali. Who who yeah, is yeah. the most famous person on the planet yeah. and who had similar vibe, this legendary, mystical, yeah. whimsical type of guy who could almost uh, hypnotize people with, with his words and hypnotize people in the ring as well. So uh, first and foremost, how did you get involved in writing this book, Ali versus Anoki? Because it's a very interesting story and there's a lot of detail in it. Uh, is it something you'd always thought about or did it kind of fall on your plate? You know, during my combat sports experience, I had a chance to go to Japan, and uh, I covered Prides and Pancrase and uh, some of the smaller shows, and um, one of my trips to Pride, um, I ended up in this souvenir pro wrestling fight shop near the Tokyo Dome. The Pride was going to have a card there. It's an amazing venue. I mean, for pro wrestling, for combat sports, Mike Tyson lost to Buster Douglas That's there. Right, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing venue to be in, and um, just... Obviously, there's these little shops dedicated to the fight game around the Tokyo Dome. I walked in uh, to this one shop. I never, I'm not a sentimental guy. I don't have a lot of stuff on my walls, a little bit here and there, but I don't bring souvenirs back from places. The only souvenir I brought back is hanging right there, the top poster there, the East versus West, wow. Antonio Noki versus Muhammad Ali, a replica poster of their match. And it captivated me right away. I was like, I sort of thought I knew about it. I didn't know much about it. Um, 
so in that way, I was like, okay, well, I need to know more sort of right Everyone away. Everyone knows the legend of it. But right. That's about it. Right. Like Muhammad Ali kind of had this match. He didn't know if it was real or not. It was and bad. It was bad. And yeah. people didn't like it. And it was a joke and all that. But I was sort of captivated that it was local because the poster is actually a closed circuit poster for an event in Riverside, California. And I'm a, oh. I'm a Los Angeles guy, born and raised. So that kind of struck me too. And as I thought about it, you know, it took me a while to write a book, probably longer than it should have. I've been covering mixed martial arts for 16 years and have probably had opportunities to do that and just never really had the you know, courage, honestly, to write a book. Um, after I left ESPN in the end of 2013, I had the time, and finally now was the moment to do it, and I thought that would be a great first book for me. So that's really what it was, and I'm excited to have written it. I mean, I learned so much. I thought I knew a lot about combat sports, especially in Japan, because I'd been to Japan so many times, but really researching and talking uh, to people around this story, I, I learned a lot more about both sides of the business. You're almost uh, an expert on this now, uh, and this poster's great because it's. A, we'll take a picture of it and post it, but it's got a cartoon version of Ali and Inoki. It looks like it's signed. Is that signed by both guys? Yeah, replica signatures. Oh, replica signatures. Okay. But the point is, so this was a very big event in 1976. Right. Correct? Yeah. How did this all get started? Well, um, you know, how did it all get started? That's an interesting question. Like this match, because these kinds of matches, these boxer versus grappler or pro wrestler had been happening for centuries. I mean, really. Jack Dempsey and Ed Strangler-Lewis. I mean, Ed Strangler-Lewis in his day was the most famous pro wrestler. He was a shooter, someone who could really, you know, defend himself and hurt somebody in the ring. Him and Jack Dempsey had a lot of talk in the newspapers about putting an event in the 1920s. Dempsey, obviously, the heavyweight the boxing heavyweight champion. boxing champion, for sure. And he had a lot of interactions with wrestlers, talked a lot about wrestlers, talked about himself being a wrestler. And at the turn of the century, early 1900s, I mean, catch wrestling, which was the early form of pro wrestling, really became one of America's most popular sports. It was real and legitimate. And then you had a big transfer in terms of the pro wrestling business and what, what that became. You know, for, for me, like, there was a long history of these kinds of matches to look back on. Gene LaBelle against Milo Savage. Gene LaBelle is a classic, famous martial artist and pro wrestler. He was California guy. California guy. You know, the NWA events down here at the Olympic Auditorium. Even before that, the WWA belt with Freddie Blassie. And, you know, Gene LaBelle was the, the hangman. He always wore the, 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 ma- the hood. No the one really knew. Oh, the, yeah, the, hang- the hood. Yeah, yeah, no one really knew who he was. So it was a lot to dive into these particular matches and where Ali Inoki falls into that history, right? And so this match in particular was based on the history of it because the pro wrestling folks at the time, basically, you know, the industry was fractured, right? You had the territories, different locations and the McMahon family was running in the Northeast. They had Vince's dad. Vince's dad. Yeah. They had control of Madison square garden and, you know, Pennsylvania was a stronghold for them. Philly, Boston, for sure. Pittsburgh. yeah, Yeah, for sure. Um, so they were approached by Bob Arum, who was uh, Ali's promoter, one of Ali's promoters at the time. Don King and Bob Arum kind of switched events, and Arum was associated with this one. He always kind of did the wild ones, looking for the buck, you know. Um, they had this proposal come from New Japan and Inoki's investors after Ali had said in 1975, is there no Oriental man that can challenge me? I'll, I'll fight him for a million bucks. And just loving the term Oriental. You could never use that term nowadays. Those right? are his words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that was 
uh, one of the things in the book, I mean, I'll, like the way that Ali speaks in the book and some of his language, can, you can be taken aback by it, you know, especially when he's talking about. It's very, you know, uh, I guess, racially tinged. Well, you know, I mean, that's 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 life. That was life in the 1960s, yeah. of course, and then into the 70s. Ali always carried with that that aspect of him, the racial aspect, yeah. always. He always had that. Social justice. I mean, he, these are things that he represented and always spoke about. Um, and it was interesting for him and a man of his figure to, to end up in a match like this. But essentially, it comes down to him being extremely competitive, him wanting to know what it was like to fight a wrestler, him wanting to know what it was like to hit a man when he was on the ground. Those are the things Muhammad Ali wanted to know. Ali was also very intrigued by wrestling yeah, because I, I think you probably know more. But isn't it true that Gorgeous George was one of his yeah. uh, and Freddie Blassie yeah. were, were very influential on in Ali's promo style, his it, interview style. Extremely influential. Freddie Blassie went with Ali to Tokyo for the Inoki match. He was his manager. He was the manager for classy Freddie Blassie days. Um, Ali fought three times in Los Angeles. It's an aspect that I cover in my book in the 1960s, 1962. And Freddie Blassie was the, the pro wrestling champion here at the time. And Blassie also had three matches with Ricky Dozan in 1962. So there was a lot of these sort of things swirling around. Ali was really curious about pro wrestling. He was curious about the characters and how to sell yourself, how to make the crowd feel you one way or another. You know, he became the Louisville lip over this period. He really did. Uh, and there's no doubt that he was fascinated by pro wrestling and it had a major influence on the kind of character he became, the kind of way he could sell his fights. Obviously, he had natural abilities. He was Muhammad Ali. He was an extremely special person, but he recognized the value in pro wrestling and applied that to what he was doing. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Talk and talk and talk is Jericho. So the offer comes from New Japan, and Ali hears about it. Is it something that's, that's signed fairly quickly? $6.1 million was the, the money dangled in front of Ali. That's a lot of money in 19... 19- By New Japan? By New Japan. So, so New Japan is basically promoting this fight. Them, and it was contingent on the closed circuit around the U.S., so that's what Bob Arum brought in the WWE folks for, because they wanted to bring the territories together. It was a night to celebrate pro wrestling and celebrate boxing and you know another night where those two things came together that's what the program said that's really what it seemed like the mcmahon family was intent on doing and it, most of the territories were open to it they promoted big nights of pro wrestling to support it obviously that night at uh, shea stadium um andre the giant against chuck wepner bruno san martino against stan hansen after you know bruno had famously Broke broken his neck, his neck. Yeah. um these were the showdown at Shea events. Like, they did three of them. They were the precursor to WrestleMania events. And all across the country, pro wrestling people, in conjunction with the closed circuit, people were going to see the Ali Inoki match live from Tokyo in the building. Instead of pay-per-view, you had to go to an arena. Um, they also got pro wrestling matches by the local live the, pro, the wrestling, live pro matches. wrestling matches. Here's, as well. here's a funny little thing. Closed circuit might seem like so archaic, but the very first WrestleMania that I ever saw, which was WrestleMania 2, I watched it on closed circuit TV at the Winnipeg arena so it was still around in its last what was it like to watch an event with a crowd like that where you're not at the event but you sell yeah, you're, 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 you're the there crowd. with it was in the arena yeah so there's a live crowd 
I don't know what they had, five, six, seven thousand people probably. Winnipeg was always a big wrestling town. And you're basically watching it on, on a precursor of a giant screen, giant big screen TV. You're watching it kind of on the on the scoreboard that was in the middle of the ice for the for the Winnipeg Jets. So we saw WrestleMania two there and then three they did not come to town, but they came for four and five. So I watched actually I watched five in Toronto on closed circuit. So I saw WrestleMania two, four and five on closed circuit. Amazing. And I think that might have been pretty much the end of it. That's about eighty seven, yeah, eighty eight. Yeah, yeah, I think by then pay per view started. Yeah. So yeah, you're going to a lot I remember I went with a friend of mine, the Gouge, <laughs> and he was so disappointed there would be no live matches. He's uh-huh. like, There's not just gonna be one live match. It's mm-hmm. like, no, you're just watching the T V. But these shows had the live match yep. as well. Well, as 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 the, as the closed circuit, boxing. they did. Everybody got um, to see Andre the Giant against Weppner, and then Ali Inoki, and then there was the local wrestling card underneath. That's what is that on its own? The Weppner and, and Andre was kind of a mixed martial arts fight too, because wasn't Weppner a boxer? Weppner was a boxer, fought Ali, technically knocked down Ali. Um, Ali mostly slipped. He was kind of got a shot to the heart more than anything, but put his hand down on the ground. It's a knockdown. One of the only times. Weppner's very proud of it. You know, he's in the book. He's a total character. He's been around the WWE a lot um the brawl for it all he was there uh, mm-hmm. he he uh tells a great story in the book about stealing the rock shoes from backstage <laughs> yeah. so chuck webner's a character he was the inspiration for rocky balboa I really mean, yeah 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 wow he really was so stallone was was watching webner and- yeah it's for a long time said he wasn't then there was a lawsuit and then uh it got settled but yes it's it's official so basically by a twist of fate he throws a punch ali slips falls whatever and webner now has a, a knockdown yeah. on ali which was Maybe two or three or four in his career not at that point. Not a lot, yeah. Maybe maybe very minimal. Yeah. Okay, so so you, you got Andre versus Webner. There's a, there's a mixed martial arts right there. It was it was a work. It wasn't a real uh, match, but um, there was there was a brawl at the end that was pretty real. I guess both sides got heated. Um, <laughs> there was uh, Andre was supposed to throw Webner out of the ring. They actually it was near the second base sort of area where the second baseman would be at Shea Stadium, and they dug out the ground and made it a little softer for him. Um, wow. Yeah, this is a story that I heard. In the aftermath of writing the book it's fun to do the book you get some stories coming sure. in afterwards you know it's, it's you realize the kind of the 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 uh the tricks of the wrestling yeah trade, for sure you know? i learned a lot about that it was yeah. really interesting to to learn about um and uh, i guess webner hit him pretty good once and andre got pissed off at him and threw him out a little early and then gorilla monsoon stepped on webner's chest <laughs> and webner's team came around the corner tearing around the corner i guess someone tried to punch andre and broke their hand Yeesh. yeah so yeah. it was a, it was a wild night you know wrestling definitely had its wild times and um this is a period in 76 where maybe wrestling doesn't have the greatest reputation mm. um, what you, in what way do you mean uh, you know it was kind of uh, in the aftermath of some of the controversies of wrestling when people finally figured out that it was sort of not real matches and the newspapers killed it in the 40s and 50s after gorgeous george you know it took a dip in the territory there were fights between the territories kind of made it difficult for pro wrestling to have be considered a legitimate it was more of an underground moment i sure. think for pro wrestling um attaching themselves to muhammad ali was a big deal kind of brought everyone together yeah, yeah. Too. it definitely brought the business together and i think that's why in the subhead i say you know, it's the forgotten fight that it inspired mixed martial arts and launched sports entertainment. Because I think for sports entertainment, it really was a kicking off point. It was where Vince Jr. really sort of saw this idea of, I think, you know, and, and I'm making some leaps here. I didn't have a chance to speak with him. But based on sort of, you know, talking to people around him, I talked to Dan Madigan, who was a, a writer around that yeah, time. Dan, yeah. Um, and, you know, sort of the idea of what this, ma- ma- this match meant in terms of Vince Jr.'s thinking. 
Uh, am I not supposed to call him Junior? I don't know. Does he, he hates a, being he, called he, Junior. He hates that, right? But at this time frame, we need to specify because right. there's Senior and Junior. Right, that's all I'm doing. Yes, so the, that, yeah, that's him, not, and his, no, him and his dad. It, yeah, and I think I think he. It's a little side story. Whenever there's a Ray Mysterio Junior or a Chavo Guerrero Junior, Ted DiBiase Junior, yeah. the Junior gets dropped right away because okay. I think Vince always found that to be detrimental. Uh-huh. And one of my insults. Years ago, was I'd call somebody Junior, like uh, the Jerky Boys. He's hey Junior, <laughs> and he loved that. He thought it was the greatest thing ever because I think he hated being called Junior. So to call someone else that was like the ultimate insult. That's so yeah, so, so you're think you're saying that that Vince Junior yeah. was kind of seeing the the overall picture of these all these territories can. I definitely again. believe I definitely believe that that, that was sort of the, the seeds were were planted at that point. Mm-hmm. And when he took over in the early 80s, really had a chance to execute his vision. And he knew it could work. He, can, he knew it could. Yeah, he, he had this idea of consolidating the business and what that would look like. And television was the key. Television's always the key in pro wrestling. Um, in the 1950s, Gorgeous George was an incredibly popular figure because of television. Japan... Uh, drives everything about pro wrestling is driven by television and there was always two competing networks and sometimes two competing organizations on the same network you know there's a lot of that sort of stuff at play um so yeah i think for for vince jr he definitely saw the opportunities the possibilities uh played out in this match and ali was a guy that continued to stay associated with the w i think he was a referee at the first wrestlemania yeah you know and as a matter of fact uh he was supposed to be the in-ring referee, but at that point he was already having issues mm, with his mm. memory, with his Parkinson's. Yeah. So they put him out on the floor yeah. and put Pat Patterson, a name I mentioned to you earlier, sure. kind of Vince's booker, right-hand man. They put Pat in the ring as yeah. the referee, uh, and then Pat could kind of orchestrate what was going on and then also tell Ali, come on in, or whatever it was. So <laughs> he was involved, though, yeah. absolutely, from the very first one. Amazing, amazing. How many cities was were there uh, at this closed circuit? I think about 150 is what I gathered. Wow. Yeah, it was a pretty big event. I mean, they build it in the press as the potential of an audience of, of 1.4 billion globally. You know, that's a lot of people. Absolutely. In um, 1976, to have that many screens. Closed circuit was successful for them in a lot of ways. This is eight months after the thrill in Manila. So you're talking about Peak Ali in terms of his stardom. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that he's ever been more famous, you know, have a higher profile in the media, probably way more overexposed than he should have been. Um, but, you know, in terms of his stardom, his physical decline, obviously starting to unfold. But um, in terms of his worldwide popularity, I, I don't think you could ever say he would be bigger than that during this period. I agree. Yeah. I had a comic book probably from about 78. It was called A Treasury. You know it. The yeah. big giant was uh, Ollie versus Superman. Superman. The crowd is the best. You can uh, yeah. start picking out people in the crowd. It's I really talked amazing. to Kevin Smith about this. Yeah. You can see Farrah Fawcett, yeah, of Don course. Knotts, and Johnny Carson. All the top guys of the day are all in there. I think Bob Dylan's in there. Yeah, a friend of mine has one, and he pulled it out from his garage not too long ago. We're just blown away by all the <laughs> so people on the all yeah, yeah. in there. How did the closed circuit draw? Uh, apparently not very well. So Ali was promised $6.1 million. I think uh, $2, two million of it or two point five was supposed to be guaranteed. And then a lot of it was contingent based on what they were doing, uh, what you know, piece of top ranks, what kind of, what of, kind of numbers they, did. they were yeah. getting. So in the book, I look at the closed circuit in a way that um, uh, I really wanted the experience in the arena from what it was like to be there. So I found four people who had attended closed circuits in different parts of the country. Just so happened to be all media people today. Uh, Dave Meltzer was a 17-year-old kid in San Jose. Watched it. I got his experience. Kevin Ioli, who's a prolific combat sports writer for Yahoo, boxing and MMA, 
huge WWF fan back in the day. Um, yeah, three W's. The three W's. Um, he watched it at uh, Monzo's, uh, Howard Johnson outside of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Wagenheim, who covered mixed martial arts for Sports Illustrated and also um, uh, now for the Washington Post, watched it at the uh, Liberty Theater in, in Elizabeth, uh, New Jersey. And um, who, who was the shoot? Who was the fourth one here that I'm uh, forgetting? Uh, terrible, feel terrible doing it. <laughs> another but, fine gentleman. Yeah, another another terrific uh, person along the way. So you know they all had their experience. And people in the arenas got upset during the match. They they hated the match. They got angry. Some places had riots. Chairs were flying. Um, but they all stuck around. I think they were all pissed off because the match itself was pretty terrible. Um, that's why it has a negative reputation in a lot of ways. Uh, now, now, you know. now, why was the match terrible? And we'll get into more specifics. But sure. Just what what was going on? Generally, look, it was a fifteen round fight. That's long. That's a long fights 45 minutes three minute rounds three minute rounds this is a 45 minute fight i mean these are the the way they used to do the boxing back in the day um it was basically ali standing for 15 rounds throwing six punches total against a a guy anoki who would be diving and like um you're sliding in the second base and throwing a kick into ali's leg on his ass the whole time basically basically he was uh most people had no idea what they were watching most people had no idea really what to expect if it'd be a pro wrestling match where more of a work scenario, you know, or a straight shoot fight, a real fight. Uh, and a lot of people were just sort of blown away by the, the boredom of it. The, the, it's amazing at that time period because there wasn't popularized mixed-style fighting. It wasn't something that people really did. But I think 40 years later, if you go back and watch the fight, it actually has some intriguing moments. There's a few points in there where there's like, you know, the tensions rise and you can feel it in the crowd. But really, it wasn't a great fight. Well, but Inoki kind of being a pioneer of, of, of the MMA style, he was basically doing, that was his defense, was to go down and just be throwing kicks. Yeah, and it was, it was predicated a lot by the rules. Now, now let's go through that. Yeah. There's a lot of controversy back yeah. and forth as to what the rules were going to be. Sure, a lot of discussion. Initially, the rules were going to look just like, like Strangler Lewis and Jack Dempsey in the 1920s. Which were? You know, basically a hybrid of boxing and pro wrestling rules. But you could, you know, the grappler could still grapple, you know. Um, in this scenario, Ali versus Noki, there was much more rules, and especially towards the pro wrestling side, like rope escapes. So very difficult for... Inoki, even if he got Ali down, he'd have to do it where it was far enough away from the ropes because any touch of the ropes separates them immediately. So if you put him in some kind of a shoot chokehold or whatever armbar, if he could touch the ropes with anything, anything. he break. Yeah. And, um, pro wrestling rules. Pro wrestling yeah. rules. So it really was a mix. It's like had, they didn't know how to make a mixed fight. There was no rules for mixed martial arts. There, was, there had been boxer versus judo and that sort of stuff. But you know, basically the, the Ali folks, once they realized this thing was legit, they said we have to protect – our guy Muhammad Ali, he has a fight three months from now against Ken Norton at Yankee Stadium. Mm. This is scary. And then Anoki's people started negotiating pretty hard. You know, uh, they scared the Ali folks. They started talking about no rules whatsoever, strikes to the Adam's apple. I think they were starting like any negotiation from a high point, right? Start high. Start yeah. high. <laughs> Hopefully you get, end up with something. But in the end, they got nothing. Um, Ali's doctor, famous doctor, Ferdy Pacheco, told me a story where uh, Hasashi Shinma, very famous pro wrestling figure, yeah. I, I think he's associated with WWE. F, he was one of the Japanese liaisons, may even be a Hall of Famer, I'm not sure, but I know Inoki is. Mm-hmm. Um, Inoki is for sure. I don't yeah, think Shima is. Shima is not, but I, I think, uh, yeah, he was definitely sort of on that level, Inoki's manager. It comes down to it early morning, like on Wednesday of fight week, I think that he basically takes out his wallet, takes out his keys, he said, here, here's everything I got, because you're not letting my guy do everything, anything, so... Do what you want, basically. You're raping me here, yes. so just rob me of everything. Basically what his message was. And uh, in the end, the thing that um, 
all these folks agreed to that they probably wish they hadn't was the ability really to kick it all um, because uh, Inoki made that his game plan. He kicked Ali in the legs over 100 times. Ali had blood clots. There was a fear of that. Uh, he, his, his left leg was puffed up. Really, I mean, it was like he dumped a motorcycle. I mean, he was scraped up really good. His leg was puffed up at least half an inch. And this isn't just kicks like in the UFC where guys aren't wearing shoes. Inoki was wearing wrestling boots laced, laced, laced up like to half his mm-hmm. shin. I mean, you know what that's like. Mm-hmm. You, could, you could hurt somebody wearing those it's, shoes, it's right? Yeah, it's leather and then like the, the straps, like yeah, the yeah, eyelets right. and all even, that. Even the, 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 the strings, the, uh, the, laces, the laces, all that sort of stuff. So during the match, all these folks started complaining about the laces and complaining about this and complaining about that, but it was too late as Inoki was still kicking him and really hurting all these wow. legs. Yeah. Now you mentioned something in the book, and uh, jumping forward a little bit, did, did, did that kind of start a physical decline for Ali? I'd always heard that it kind of really messed him up. I, think, I mean, the one thing that Ali always had was his legs, right? As far as mobility? As far as mobility and his speed, quick, quick. Everything started from the ground up. It's like any sort of athletic act does, right? I mean, you start planted in the ground. That's where you generate power. For Ali, he was so nimble and yet could generate power and plant and move in, in ways a lot of guys couldn't. Um, over the nor- normal course of a boxer's career, that stuff dissipates, right? right. He was always... You know, he was always susceptible to wars. It wasn't, you know, Ali would get in wars, and he just had a major war with Joe Frazier. So he was already in his decline. His strategy, for people that don't know, was basically to stand there and take as many punches as the guy could give him that became until a strategy. he tired out. Right? Later, later in his yeah. career, that was his strategy, right? right? Uh, I mean, that happened against George Foreman famously, right? Rope-a-dope. Um, but he was so brilliant and beautiful in the early part of his career, the way he could move. He didn't move like any other heavyweight. Just had the speed and fluidity that you saw in lighter weight classes. But he could do it. Float like a butterfly. <laughs> and then he took his social, um, posi- ju- social justice positions, had his run-ins with the U.S. government, was out of boxing for three years, fought the powers that be, right? And came back. And even when he came back on the other side of that, he was a different athlete. It's going to affect anybody, right? Maybe reflexes aren't quite there. You took, maybe you weren't trained in the way you no- normally would have trained. So your body starts to back up a little bit. Um, and that's why, you know, he started to get crafty. And the smart Ollie, you know, really the head game Ollie too, especially. I think we started to see more of that. Mm-hmm. And, yes, this match had a, a really bad effect on his legs. Um, that was wow. still the one um, line of defense for him. He could move. He could get out of the way. Not as great as he used to, but still had that. After this fight, he never knocked anyone down again. He suffered yeah, in some fights. He probably shouldn't have beaten Ken Norton. Most people think that that next fight against at Yankee Stadium, he lost that fight. It was a decision. It was right? a decision that he, that he won because that he should not have. Because he's Ali. Yeah. He also, he just had Ken Norton's number. Never, Norton, nothing ever went well for Norton against mm-hmm. Ali. I mean, the first he broke his jaw. Um, you know, Norton broke Ali's jaw in the first fight and, and won. But really, he had some heartbreaks against Ali. Probably should have beat him all three times. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it was. Uh, you, you definitely could see the decline. You could definitely see the decline. So, for, so as funny as is, is not funny, but people talk about this match just being the shits and being kind of a disaster. It really did affect Ali, and really, it was real. You know, it had a legacy that people yeah. dismissed, and right. that was the one thing I wanted to do. As I thought about the book, it didn't occur to me as I jumped into the book. This is my first one. I really didn't know what I was getting into. I mean, it's a hell of a thing to write a book. Sure. And you know, I'm, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. How many books have you put out? Three and I'm working on my fourth. Well, as today I was working on my fourth. And you're busy as anybody else in, in you know, yeah. there can be. So it's amazing you can find the time to do that. But it's very meticulous. 
yeah, you got to yeah. research, you got to draft and redraft and yeah. redraft. I so. did nothing basically for a summer and I wrote the book in yeah. three and a half months and that, yeah. you know, that's all I could do. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the process of sort of figuring what were we talking about? I'm sorry. We jumped in. We were now. just talking about how, uh, it was, it basically affected Ali and it was, sure. it was, it was, you were saying it was a lost, yeah, uh, the story was lost. The story was lost. Just story, how story serious this was to Ali's right. career. So, yeah, the book writing reminded me of, like, you know, why I wrote this book. And it occurred to me as I was doing it, like, I wanted to, and I thought that the match deserved to be looked at in a different way than a joke. Mm-hmm. And um, 40 years later, in a world now where, you know, mixed fighting, the UFC, mixed martial arts is a global popular thing that's generated a lot of money in different places and drawing eyeballs and people understand it now. It's part of the cultural zeitgeist at this point. This match is a reason why modern mixed martial arts looks like it does. Mm. And it affected Muhammad Ali's athleticism and it was a piece of his legacy that was understated because it took a lot of guts for him to do it. You know, a lot of Floyd, yeah. Floyd Mayweather Jr. would never, ever do this. Why put yourself in that position? Cause it's he, unknown. Because he was so competitive mm. and he wanted to know that. He needed to know that. Mm-hmm. And so he got paid a lot of money. In the end, he only made $1.8 million, which is still <laughs> a lot, but not the 6.1 he was promised. And he got screwed and it didn't work out for him or a lot of other people. But he, that's why he did it. And so I hope people now take a look at it and have an understanding of where this fits into the larger story of pro wrestler or grappler versus boxer because there's an amazing history there. And how that led to what the UFC is, which is essentially is a business model, is a hybrid pro wrestling sport model. I mean, yeah. that's what the UFC is. In a lot of ways. Yeah. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This this is Talk is Jericho. Let me ask you, there was a a famous fight that had the same kind of negative connotation of just being brutal. Was it Shamrock versus Severin? Where they basically just circle yeah. each other for 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Kind of the same vibe as the Ali Anoki. Neither guy wanted to make the first move because they knew they could get Yeah, and then that was, that was also impacted by rules, too. Like, that, that was an event that was caught down. Uh, like, authorities really came down on the UFC at that time. They said, you can't do this, you can't do that. They took mm-hmm. away a lot of the rules. And I spent a lot of time in the book about rules because rules really dictate what a match can look like. I mean, if Muhammad Ali fought Antonio Noki in modern mixed martial arts rules, that'd be a crazy fight. What would, that, what would that look like? Most people assume Inoki would have the advantage, would take him down, would submit him, probably a lot like what Mickey Gall did to CM Punk, right? But Ali was an incredible athlete. I mean, unbelievable athlete. Sure. You know? With the speed and yeah. also the punching right. power. So If Ali would have gotten a, a punch or two away. In a real situation where Ali felt fear, like, you know, because I think that there was some sense of resignation that the rules were really against Inoki and there was some sense of safety for Ali. But if he felt like he was in a real mixed fight scenario, I wonder what that would have looked like. I don't yeah, know. That would, I agree. That, would, that would have been wild if, to if see. If it was like, a, you know, yeah. some crazy millionaire put them both yeah. in, a, in a pen and said, go for it. And this match had so much influence over what mixed martial arts looked like because from Inoki's legacy, New Japan Pro Wrestling, Strong Style, you know, Funaki and Sasaki and Tiger Mask and these guys who went off and well, said, yeah. we're going to do pro wrestling for real in these organizations. We're going to find out what the truth is. And, you know, Shudo is an incredible seminal mixed martial arts organization. Same with Pancrase. These came before the UFC. 
Ken Shamrock was in the UFC. He was in Pancrase first. But that also yeah. was became Minoki's gimmick was yeah. he would fight boxers yeah. and, and you know lots of different yeah. guys over the years. He was the the mixed martial arts champion, and I credit Vince McMahon Sr. with coming up with that phrase mixed martial arts. He mm-hmm. said it. He said it early on. Right. Chuck Webner said when he was invited to do uh, a match against uh, Andre the Giant, Vince Sr. called him and said, do you want to do a mixed martial arts match? Huh. So, I, I, you know, a lot of people debate over where that name came from, but I'm giving it, you know, credit to, 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 yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk about Sr. And, and also Vince Jr. Um, being involved in this. First of all, tell, tell me the, the, the debate about the finish of the match. Sure. What, what was it supposed to be? How did it change? Because there was a lot yeah. of controversy about that as Initially, well. Initially, it was proposed as a work and that um, Inoki would beat Ali, but like on a disqualification, some shady pro wrestling way. or something. Or... Yeah, it was like I think one of the, the famous kick that Inoki did was a kick to the head, I think, a sort of thing. And But Ali would be distracted and they invoked sort of the sneaky Japanese references, right? Pearl Harbor was a whole thing. That's why when... Uh, they got off the flight from Tokyo, you know, classy Freddie Blassie screaming about Pearl Harbor and all these sorts of things. Amazing footage to watch them walk through the airport there. Just demeaning the whole country. Just incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, Blassie was amazing. You, you know, amazing in terms but of the just, language he just used. Just so you know, that, I mean, it might not be the same now, but when I was going there in the, in the mid-90s, I saw it a couple times myself. Actually, the first company I worked for was FMW, Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling, mm-hmm. where the guy, Atsushi Onita, would, would work. He even brought in Leon Spinks over to you know beat Leon Spinks. Mm-hmm. He brought this guy Gregory Verichev, who was a judo champion. But it, I, I saw one time him walking through the crowd and a fan patting patting the bad guy in the back, Tarzan Goto. Goto turned around and punched him right in the face, man. And and I did it myself when I was there as I'm the sure. heel. People would come backstage, I'd push him up against the wall, throw him out the door. <laughs> You'd be sued for assault. But in Japan they would be scared to death and the next day it would be a badge of honor to their friends. Seriously. So Blassie coming over and telling everybody, you know, you're going to get Pearl Harbor here. They were like, oh, Blassie's crazy. Did you see what he said? And he already had a huge legacy because of his wrestling days with Rikido Zan mm-hmm. and coming over. And he had this, my favorite story in the whole book is that I, I learned that, uh, and this may be well known in, in pro wrestling lore, but I didn't know it about Blassie, is that he had a dentist friend in Los Angeles who made these false uh, teeth for him and sort of fang-like. So he had this reputation as a vampire. And he would, you know, every time he went on the road or went to a show, he'd get new dentures to put in. He could gnaw away at whatever he wanted to. And he did that, and he drew blood in a match with Rikido Zan. Apparently, you know, these older Japanese folks on TV, you know, they were watching, they had heart attacks, and they died. And so people were scared to death of Freddie Blassie. actually died yes. from watching this. Yes, in yeah. the 1950s, yeah. Right, because yeah. he was so, like, 60s, he was like yeah. a vampire. Biting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they'd never seen anything like this, you know? Wow. Um, and so it... it uh, it really was uh, these amazing group of people coming together. I mean, this. But story. we're talking about the the finish. Wasn't there another one in the book where they said that the idea would be was it was Inoki was going to gig or was going to juice as we call it in wrestling or was, was that, it Ali get, that was going to juice get is cut? the term? Yeah, get cut. Yeah. yeah. Well, so Vince Jr. writes about this in uh, Freddie Blassie's biography. It's you know the only way I sort of really know about it because as I researched the book, the WWE side decided they didn't want to speak to me talk about it. Yeah, yeah and I and I understand that. Pro we were saying earlier that's from the seventies. Yeah. That was a different world than now. If it happened yesterday, you'd probably get an interview with everybody involved. Yeah. The seventies was to still talk about that now. There's still a little bit of a secret society about still it. Still a little romantic sort of yeah, quality yeah, to it yeah and, and yeah, rightfully and, so well look I hope I did the story right I mean uh, if uh, if anybody from that time wants to talk to me after writing a book I'm happy to <laughs> do it happy to do, do an update it. yeah but I, I I think the finish you know went through a, a few different incarnations uh, Ali was supposed to go down so you Al- said Vince was writing about about it in Freddie's book what yes was, what would he write uh, well uh, as far as the cut you know um, if things weren't going the right way apparently um, 
Gene LaBelle, who's the referee. They brought Gene over to be the referee, the referee. almost the enforcer as well. Kind of, case. yes, yes. He could definitely be a guy who could do that. Both Inoki and Ali knew Gene. They knew what kind of tough guy he was in different ways. But, yeah, they both trusted him. There's some school of thought that Ali wanted Gene there especially to protect him. So this story from Vince kind of runs contrary to that. And Gene denied it straight away, as he would do, I think, no matter what. But, um, you know, the people who uh, I talked to around Ali, they said, no, we don't think that that's, there's any truth to it, but you never know. So Vince put out that um, he, F- Freddie Blassie and Gene, would, uh, had talked in Japan essentially about if Ali's having too much success or for whatever reason Gene needs to control the match, he'd blade Ali. Blade Ali. Blade Muhammad Ali. And Ali didn't know, wouldn't know this. That seems wild to me. That seems like it wouldn't happen that way. Well, I mean, the fact that he wouldn't know about it, I don't know. But there have been times, yeah. you know, back in the day, we don't, we're not allowed to do that anymore. But if someone would, you know, the referee would gig the guy. Yeah, where or, you're just like you're checking like a guy or checking around yeah. and like cut him around his face. But but, right? but you, you would know. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you would, would you know, would feel the prick. But right maybe away? you didn't know okay. that you were like maybe you couldn't do it or didn't want to do it or didn't right. feel comfortable doing it. Someone else would would gig you, right? So. Gene denied that no no one ever told him to do this. It never came from the boss. He never heard from you know anybody that would make him think that he needed to do this. As far as he knew, it was a shoot, and Freddie told him it was a shoot. But that's Vince's story, Vince Jr.'s story. And as it goes, apparently his dad found out, and his dad said, hey, what the hell are you doing? Get your ass back to the States. Because he had sent Vince over to kind of help with the finish? Right. Yes. So, so, so what would, how would that be the finish? Ali's bleeding? Ali's bleeding, and then they would have to call it right there. And if Ali was doing too good or if Inoki was doing too good? The story was if Ali was doing too good. Why wouldn't they want? I don't know. Oh, because he's the wrestling. The wrestling, and also I think you know, the idea of preserving the possibility for a do-over. If there was enough controversy that they could do another match. Second match. Second match. They would stop the match. Yeah. Because I think there's another one in there that you said that Inoki would blade. Right. And then Ali would ask to stop the fight. That was the original idea for the, for the match. That was the original proposal was that Ali would be from – Bob Arum said this to Sports Illustrated. Um, that Ali, uh, Aaron, Ali would be doing well, sort of la- you know, landing jabs, popping off jabs. Inoki would start bleeding, would go down. Ali would say, mercy, mercy, enough on him. He'd turn his back. Inoki would surprise him. That's where the Pearl Harbor thing sneaky came in. Sneaky Japanese. Sneaky, sneaky Japanese. Yeah. Uh, but apparently Ali said, no, I'm not, I'm not going down. And the, I think the real reason for that above his bravado and sort of competitive nature was the reality that over the course of these matches in pro wrestling history, when you had a guy in the ring who knew how to shoot against a guy who didn't really know how to shoot, was maybe more of a worker or wasn't as skilled, there was always that danger that if – the guy was going to go down, the, the, the more skilled wrestler was going to go down, that he'd turn the tables mm-hmm. and that he could hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. And so I think they were fearful that Inoki maybe had a reputation for doing that. You know, his match against Great Antonio, I think, came before then where Great Antonio wasn't um, – uh, what's the word I'm looking for? When a guy doesn't sell. He was no yeah, he selling. He wasn't working with him. He was him. no selling him, right? I guess trying to embarrass Anoki, uh, and then Anoki just unleashed on him and knocked him out, like mm. basically kicked him in the face on the ground. Right, right, right. So um, there Which was always why that. why they would have Gene LaBelle there as the kind of the... Uh, right, so I think con. on Ali's side and Ali in particular, they felt like 
we have to treat this like a real match because if we walk in expecting a pro wrestling match and he does something, you know, to put himself over, hey, he could drive my head through the canvas. I'm Muhammad Ali. All of a sudden, he's Antonio Inoki, king of the world. Sure. So they have to they had to protect themselves from that. But even the fact of having Inoki or having Inoki go over on Ali with the with the Japanese Pearl Harbor attack, this is Muhammad Ali. He's he's the world champion in boxing. If he goes down to a, a worked finish, yeah. wouldn't that hurt his credibility in boxing or the sport of boxing in general? I'm sure some people felt that. I think a lot of the boxing, me- boxing media felt that. That's why one of the reasons they hated this match so much and they dismissed it. Um, if you look back at the newspaper accounts, and there was a lot of um, newspaper calmness spending time on this fight in the week of the match. You can do uh, amazing research on the amount of uh, uh, newspapers that were covering, because of Ali's popularity, right. this mixed-style fight. Um, there were some of them who got the idea that this was part of a larger history, but most of them treated it like pro wrestling's a joke. This is a joke. Ali's being embarrassed. And so the match also didn't do anything to take away from that idea. The match was one that most people felt was terrible to watch. The whole thing was a farce. Right. And that was one of the reasons for its reputation, the way that people really sort of dismissed it and didn't like it. But there was a lot of buzz about this amongst mainstream. We mentioned yeah. about he was on The Tonight Show promoting this. Sure, sure. Yeah, people weren't interested in it. Yeah. They were definitely interested in it because it was Muhammad Ali. Mm. And he did everything, I think... I don't know if it's fair to say that he promoted this bout more than any other fight in his history because he promoted a lot of his fights and did it as hard as possible. But this was really his baby. He needed to sell it. He needed to use his reputation to get over. And he made like direct declarative statements on The Tonight Show saying, this match is real. The holds are real. You know, this guy can hurt me. Um, I'm expecting to do this. He talked about playing the ropes. He talked about understanding that he could defend himself. So he treated this like a real match. He had to do it, and so he gave it a lot of thought. Mm-hmm. And he, was, he watched a lot of footage of Inoki, you know, treated him like a real opponent, treated everything like a, a real contest, even though there was some hope along the way and that maybe this would end up a, a work. But I think in the, in the back of his mind, he was comfortable with it being a shoot and, and wanted it to be that. Was the mainstream media buying it? Um, no, a lot of them weren't. A lot of them sort of didn't recognize right, its place in history. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they're like money grab. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he had just come off three really terrible boxing bouts um, where he was looking bored and disinterested, especially his last one. He came in kind of heavy at 230 pounds. That was against? This is Jimmy Young. I think that was in Baltimore. Never heard of him. Yeah. Right, exactly. He was one of these guys that were just money fights, basically. The first guy was a Belgian guy who famously, like, was sipping champagne in the corner between rounds because, what? like, legit. Like, it was like, that's... that's <laughs> he was drinking during the fight? Yeah, he was drinking during the fight. He was <laughs> sipping champagne, you know. That's basically the deal. Then he fought. Ali was fat. Ali always wanted to come in around 220, and you could tell he didn't care. He was also living life. He was going through it was about to go through a divorce with his wife he was spending a lot of time with this woman veronica porsche who he was going to marry mistress, yeah. who became his wife the following year who Inoki attended the wedding in <laughs> beverly hills um so for, for ali this period was one of boredom and he studied the first press conference for this match was at the plaza in new york in may of march of 76 and it it sort of occupied his time ever since. He did a lot of media for it, you know, did The Tonight Show, did a lot of um, sort of investing his own time and energy and putting his own reputation on the line. Well, he also to, had a couple, to sell it. couple pro wrestling matches yeah. to build it. Yeah, in the month. He was on Wide World of Sports the month of. Uh, Vince McMahon Jr. called the, the contest on, uh, on Wide World of Sports. 
Uh, he interviewed Ali. That was, I think, famously when um, Gorilla Monsoon did, uh, said that Ali didn't know a wrist lock from a wrist watch. You know, that's the, these things that sort of these happened around this event was pretty amazing. Uh, Ali wrestled two guys, Buddy Wolf, and I forget the other guy's I think it's name. Jake the Milkman Milliman, yeah, who was a guy that we used to work up in Winnipeg. Yeah, so I know the name. So he bloodied him up. He wore gloves. You know, the whole thing. Uh, there was a there was going to be a, a, a sort of sideshow with Gorilla Monsoon where Gr- Monsoon was going to come in the ring and pick up Ali and dump him. And they did it in rehearsal. I, the, uh, Gene Kilroy, who was one of Ali's longtime advisors and spoke to me for the book, was great. Saw it in Philadelphia. Uh, the first time they practiced it, Monsoon sort of dumped Ali on his side, and everybody's like, oh, shit. Like, that, was, that looked like painful, you know? Mm-hmm. So there was real bumps. I mean, you know, pro wrestling, I don't know if you know this, but pro wrestling hurts. Yeah. <laughs> so why, because why, you've seen that many times of, of Gorilla Monsoon picking up Ali and airplane spinning him. Mm-hmm. What, how does that promote the fight? I think it all sells the who knows what's going to happen. Okay. Who knows what's going to happen. Because you would think that it would be like Ali would yeah. pick up Gorilla. And like, no, I mean, they it. couldn't, you know, they, I, I think there was some of that sense of who knows what's going to happen. Here's Gorilla Monsoon, this big, great wrestler. Yeah. You know, he's got some success, but maybe against this Japanese guy, Inoki, you know, there's some hope. I don't know. I think... You know, just, just you had pomp and circumstance. This, this in a lot of ways was, uh, you know, different routes to promotion coming together. You had the way the boxing promoted versus the way the pro wrestling promoted, and these worlds really colliding for this wonderful event. And um, you could see where things meshed really well, and sometimes where they clashed. Mm. And you know, it, there, there had to be both sides had to come out happy. Both sides had to be well, and you even know. so, even within America, like wrestling, still like, even to this day, someone comes in there. Oh, this boxer's going to come in here, and he's going to what? He's going to knock me out, right? You know, it's a, it's it's a secret society. So even if it's Muhammad Ali, I can still see the boys going sure. This guy, sure, Who's sure. You think he is? Sure, you know, sure. Come in here and take, take a bump for him. Yeah. No way. How, are there? Are there still? Or is it a totally lost generation? Are there still shooters like guys like really tough guys? Because it, it, always... the CM Punk now is people are going to look at CM Punk as sort of what pro wrestlers can do in a, in a mixed rules fight. Or you can is look that at fair? Bro- or you can look at Brock Lesnar. Sure. Well, Brock's a freak. I mean, that's Brock's I mean. a Brock's so a you, freak. You got two sides yeah. of the coin, yeah, you know. Sure. And, and that's Punk's first fight. Who knows right. what he's going to be like if he continues right. to do fight ten? But I mean, I will say this: it's like. There has always been a boxing wrestling connection, even to the point where Mike Tyson's only pro wrestling match, you know, his tag team partner was mm. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me and Mike Tyson against uh, Shawn Michaels and, and Triple H. Amazing. And the finish of the match was uh, I'm yelling at, at the triple, they were called DX. I'm yelling at DX. And meanwhile, Mike Tyson is behind me taking off his shirt to show he's got a DX shirt on. Oh. Double crossing me. I turn around <laughs> and it's Tyson and he's supposed to punch me. And I'll tell you what, man. We had gone through it a bunch of different ways, but when I'm standing there, the cue was when I put my hands up, you punch me. I'm starting to put those hands up. I'm like, I am the craziest dude in the world right now because I'm letting Iron Mike Tyson take a punch at me, take a swing. And what if he's mad or what if he misses or what if he just doesn't care? (laughs) He can kill me right now. He took a swing and he came so close. I felt a breeze go by, but he couldn't have gotten any closer without actually getting me. But you can find on YouTube, it looks like he's knocking my head off. But there's always been that connection between the two. Now, we were talking about the finish, and we mentioned how there was a scenario where Ali goes down. There's a scenario when Inoki goes down. What was decided on before the match? Did they go into that with, with no finish? Yeah, it was a shoot fight. An actual sh- Did they basically just get in an argument and say, F*** it, just go in there and see what happens? They agreed to a shoot fight. In the end, they had a series of rules negotiations that lasted in a fight week. People were really going back and forth on what they could do, but there wasn't any discussion of a finish. I think that idea ended pretty early on. 
you know, maybe there was some hope that maybe they could come together, but really everything, everybody decided that this thing was going to be legitimate and all these folks thought he was nuts and maybe he was, but you know, crazy like a fox sometimes, you know, Ali always knew what he was doing, always knew what he was doing. Uh, he didn't care if you had an opinion, maybe, but he he was always pretty up He's on paying the bills. Yeah, He's he was paying a lot of people's bills. There was a huge entourage around him. Yeah, huge entourage around him. Um, you know, Ali is. I mean, he's running the world. He's the most famous guy on the planet. And they probably treated him like an emperor over there doing our job. Literally, they put him in the imperial suite. <laughs> I mean, that uh, $400 a night in 1976 was a pretty yeah. seven rooms, you know. <laughs> Anoki showed off that room and then uh, the, to the press the week before Ali got there. And the very last thing was him in the bedroom. And Anoki straight punches the bed. She's just like, this is, this is what's happening. So there was no finish. I mean, this was, this was a Which fight. Which is unbelievable to think about that. Unless someone comes out. Uh, that I'm unaware of and says, you know, in the end that, that there was such an agreement between them that the fight, that punches would be pulled or something like that. I haven't heard that. I mean, there's always been whispers, but in terms of a finish, no, there was nothing like that. In reality, Inoki should have won. It was a draw. Jean LaBelle and then two judges uh, so decided one, on that. one judge went for Ali. The boxing referee, the boxing-affiliated judge went for Inoki. The wrestling-affiliated judge went for Ali. And then you had Jean who called it a draw. There was three-point deductions in the match. Um, the only time that Inoki got Ali to the ground was round six. And he was perfectly legal to do that. Basically, um, uh, Ali was standing above Inoki as he was basically the whole fight. Uh, Inoki grabbed Ali's the left heel on the ground, thrust his hips forward, and Ali just tumbled over like a guy who had never grappled in his life. I mean, it was that easy to take him down. So Inoki's on top of Ali, facing the opposite direction. So he's not, like, mounted on him, facing his chest. He's facing the opposite direction. Not a lot he can do. Ali immediately touches the rope, both his foot and his hand. Immediately, he's, he's aware. Break. Except uh, Noki didn't break. He threw an elbow and slammed an elbow right into Ali's forehead. Pissed Ali off. Mm. So that was a point deduction. Round 13, the only round where Noki really kind of goes in for any kind of takedown that would look like a double leg or anything like that, but really weak, always against the ropes. It looked like he didn't really want to do it. And Carl Gotch was in his corner. He was going crazy because he wants... No, Gotch was in Noki's corner? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he wanted to kill everybody. So, you know... Why is that? Because he felt like uh, Noki wasn't doing what he should be doing against this guy, Ali, and that he would... You know, Gotch was a guy, a real shooter who, could, shooter who could tie up anybody, right? He was probably thinking this, should ma- this match should be over in the first round. That's what he was thinking, yeah. right? So, um, in the 13th, Ali um, is against the ropes, tied up. He grabs a rope right away, and then Noki knees him in the groin. Like hard. And that, that pissed off Ali. Ali sort of ducked out from the ropes that I'm leaving. Screw this. I'm done. Gene LaBelle kind of laughs and tells a story of, uh, he said, get back in your champ. I bet on you. Like you can't, you can't <laughs> yeah, get yeah, yeah, So it's yeah. a classic Gene LaBelle win, line. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And Ali came back in the ring. But there's a mystery point deduction somewhere that Gene didn't quite remember. And I think it's in the eighth round. But the scores, maybe in that way, that was the finish. The Broadway, right? Isn't that, isn't that what a, a Broadway is a draw? It would seem yeah. to me. Now, thinking about, you know, I'm not going to do the job for you. You're not going to do the job for me. It would seem to be that the that the way to save face is the, the draw, draw, especially the draw. with Gene LaBelle right. being the third guy voting it. And here's the other one, too. Yeah. The boxing guy goes for the wrestler, and the wrestling guy goes for the boxer. Right, a shady, That's yeah. a little too uh, convenient, <laughs> right. you know. And, and listen, if I was in that position with all that money at stake and all that bravado at stake yeah. – it seems like it's it's the it's the finish to Ali versus Superman. Yeah, yeah. The, in that comic book, it's a draw. Yeah, 
because you know that's because the mobsters couldn't win because they had bet so much on it. So Ali and, and Superman get together to screw over the the alien mobsters. Well, maybe that's what it fun. was. Maybe the mobsters got screwed over because it was uh, Japan you know in seventy six like, and there were I mobsters. Think, I, yeah, sure. but that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. But it seems to me a little bit too convenient like, to just be a draw, especially since Inoki was basically kicking the crap out of yeah. Ali's legs. Yeah, yeah. I think there's. I mean, that wouldn't surprise me. No one really copped to that right mm. away. But that's something in the book that's explored, and um, you know that. That's part of the history of it. I think that's why it would have been interesting if the decision had been read and Inoki came out the winner. I mean, right. I, I think people would probably still have dismissed it as unworthy or not important. And, or, or a home, hometown. Yeah, a homer, yeah. You know. and Ali afterwards said, no matter what the decision is, you know, I still have my reputation in boxing and that's where my real priorities are in my life is but yeah i think that it's quite possible that the powers that be came came to this idea that well the rules are going to look like this you know maybe enoki can do something crazy and hurt ali maybe ali lands a punch and touches that giant chin but in the end it's probably everybody's going to go home make their money and then fight another day right right yeah so just as a quick thing i just want to segue back to this quickly so you said that Senior sent Vince Jr. over to Japan to help with the finish. That's the story. Not not to have not, sort of maybe to be there and and, and view, it. Yeah, yeah, sort of view things and have you know be sort of that WWF perspective, that voice for what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when he found out about the suggestion to get the, 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 get, get the hell out of here, and so Vince uh, Jr. called that uh, night at Shea. He was doing the broadcast of that night at Shea, so obviously he made it back mm-hmm. to New York in time for in all time. that. Yeah. So I mean, so the so the, so the, the the match ends. What's the reaction in the arena? Uh, in, it was the Budokan. Yeah, it was the Budokan. Uh, it was a warm day, a hot day. It was started around July, uh, June. So it started about one o'clock because they wanted to coincide with the the closed circuit time in the U.S., make it a prime time sort of thing. Um, so people were pretty bothered, you know, pretty ornery. Uh, there were stories about um, cushions being thrown and banana peels and sort of like uh, some, a lot, I think, orange peels were being thrown. Which in Japan is like, you know, pooping in a bag and throwing. Right, very, right. They don't do any of that stuff right. there. Yeah. Now, this was kind of a, a loud crowd, the way it was described to me. People who were there who I spoke to kind of described it. You know, I went to 12 Pride events. I've been other to Japanese cards. I've never been to a Japanese pro wrestling event. And maybe a little bit more animated than um, some of the fight events. But the Japanese crowd is always very quiet until right, yes. until the moment where they shouldn't be quiet. And they can – it's like they sense something's coming and they react to it right Same away. Same in wrestling. Yeah. Be very quiet until the false finishes yeah. come at the end. One, yeah. two, oh, and they stomp their feet. Yeah, exactly. But you, you could be exchanging holes yeah. and you'd be like – do I suck? It's so odd watching make, a fight that way. Yeah, I mean, they're not making any noise. Is it weird to wrestle that way? Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. it's completely quiet. Same with the rock show. Yeah, yeah. Completely quiet until yeah. between songs. There's lots of claps and then right. go right back silent. So this crowd was apparently not like that. They were loud and buzzing and boisterous the whole time. Maybe there was an Ali factor. I don't mm. know. Um, but they didn't like it. And then the cl- closed circuit venues, people were upset. Like I said, in San Jose, I think Meltzer said they started rioting around the 11th round, you know, and <laughs> started throwing chairs and, you know, a whole, whole bunch of things. And it. it you know, people did not have a pleasurable experience. They right. did not like it. And um, especially in Budokan and Anoki was sort of treated really harshly in the nightly news and people were not fond of the match right away. Um, yeah, it was, it was one of those things where I think everybody felt like, I can't believe we did this. We did it. Let's get the hell out of here. You know, it was one of those, you know, what's funny is that I was, like I said, I was talking to Pat about this yesterday or two nights ago. I saw him on the plane and he was telling me, and, and, and you'll probably understand this better than me because you mentioned that they started at a certain time to get the prime time airing. So the way Pat described it was that if you were in Shea Stadium, the Andre match and the Bruno match was before the Inoki. Right. 
Whereas in California, because Pat was a, a Roy Shire guy and a LaBelle guy, he probably was wrestling, I would say, wow. in, in San Francisco. He said that the Inoki match went on first, and they had to go on after that. Oh, I didn't he know that. He said that the match was so bad that he said it was like, it was that shit, no one was making noise, everyone was angry, and there was no... So Meltzer might have even been at the one that Pat wrestled on after the Inoki fight. Oh, last day. And Dave. just said it was the worst place to go on because everyone was already angry and <laughs> pissed off and throwing shit. So what are we supposed to go out there and do? Yeah, well, I'm sure they managed. I mean, you, you guys are pretty, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> pretty malleable that way. You can jump into a different yeah. scenario, an ordinary situation, and, uh, you know, make it work for you. Have you seen this fight? Was it recorded? Yeah, I, I watched, uh, I probably watched it 30 times mm-hmm. in preparation for the book and then writing the, the chat. I've spent one chapter on the fight itself. I go through all 15 rounds. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I document it with the accounts of what's happening in the ring, what's happening in the corners, what the fighters are saying to each other, and what's happening in the closed-circuit venue. I sort of tie all that in. Uh, also, the broadcast. I got uh, the closed-circuit American broadcast um, and also watched the Japanese version. Um, I got that from uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling people. Okay. Um, Asahi TV put out a documentary a couple uh, years ago where they put out uh, the full disc of the match and then some great behind-the-scenes stuff of pro cro- uh, press conferences. and Yeah, so it was huge, hugely valuable resource to watch all that and, and put it together. Did you try, and obviously uh, Ali has passed away, but when you are writing this book, he was alive but didn't really talk much. Mm. Did you try and contact uh, Inoki at all? Sure, I tried. I had a lot of conversations with Simon Inoki, mm-hmm. who uh, works for uh, his pro wrestling company, yeah, his son-in-law. Yeah. Um, did interviews with him. You know, was promised. It's, again, it's one of those pro wrestling things, right? So I was promised time with Inoki, uh, multiple sort of discussions about it. I was really bullish that I was going to get to speak to him for him, uh, speak to him for this project. Never happened. I was, you know, promised maybe some photos. It never really quite happened. But you know, I took that as part of the experience of delving into that world and these people. And it's not like there wasn't any shortage of information or people I could talk to no, about no. about Inoki. Of course, I would have loved to have had his perspective. Um, I wonder how much he would have really told me, you know, it's always that it's it's, it's a very mythical, uh, fight. Yeah. Very mythical moment in history. And I think that Vince as well will go out of their way to kind of contain that and, 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 and prolong that mysticism. But I hope, I hope they see the value in this match. Um, you know, WWE put a really nice short on the anniversary. The 40th anniversary was June 26th. And, uh, they put out a great short video about it, really talking about what it meant and, and, uh, to them, to pro wrestling, and also to mixed martial arts, and uh, I think recognizing you know these forces coming together, these people coming together, um, pretty important. I mean, Inoki always kind of gets lost in this conversation. He's, we talked about it a lot today, but generally, as I've done interviews about this book or or about this moment in time, people are obviously more fascinated with Ali, but Inoki's character and who he is and what he means to Japan and you know uh, what he means to the, um, the mixed martial arts fight world. There's no Japanese. Mixed martial arts, you know, there's no pride probably without this match and what he did. At least from, from my experience, yeah. that's the first I heard of it in about 92, 93 of mixed martial arts was in Japan. Mm-hmm. It started there. Yeah. And it started with Inoki because, yeah. like I said, he was always facing some kind of a judo guy or yeah. boxing guy yeah. or even Dan Severn in the Tokyo Dome, sure. you know, for the shoot fight. Yeah. Inoki would always win. Yeah. He's the toughest guy in the world. Yeah. Maybe that's to avenge the uh, draw to Ali. Uh, Inoki was supposed to be really tough. You know, he was supposed to be one of these guys who could really grapple. And he was, he brought in Carl Gotch and paid Gotch like 60,000 bucks a year to run their camp and treat, you know, t- uh, teach the new kids coming in, the young boys, 
how to actually mm. sh- catch, you know, to, to catch people, do catch wrestling. And I think that was really important to him. And he was apparently a skilled guy. I don't think he was the most skilled guy, but you talk to someone like Josh Barnett, who great fighter, obviously, and he's done a lot of pro wrestling in Japan and, and other places and comes from that, you know, uh, Billy Robinson, Carl Gotch lineage. You know, he, he vouches for Inoki. He says Inoki was a real tough guy. Even to his 70s, he could still roll around and grapple with you. So, he did, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that he could inflict some damage. It was, you know, he was, he's, he was someone I was glad to learn a lot about. I was around him some in Japan. Uh, he, did a, he did an event at Little... In Inoki? Little, yes, Inoki. And then uh, he did an event in Little uh, Tokyo in downtown Los Angeles when I was covering Pride, when they were still around. And it was amazing to see people come out and like, clear, you know, clap for this guy. And you know, He's uh, got his face all over Japan. I uh, lost a couple statements and questions. I actually got my job in WCW, which was Ted Turner's company in 96, because I got booked on the... Uh, World Peace Festival, which uh-huh. happened here in 96, promoted by Antonio Inoki. Yeah, yeah. So indirectly, yeah. I don't know how the hell I got on that bill. It had nothing to do with Inoki, but just being on that show gave me the, the spotlight to be seen by people that had not looked at me in any other incarnation until I worked in Inoki's show. And what was that? where was that? It was here in LA. It was in LA. Yeah, in 96, wow. I think it was at... The forum, okay, Inglewood Forum, yeah. And like, who who or else? Would, arena. Who else would be on that card? It was it was an amalgamation. See, Inoki did this a lot. You mentioned he did it in Korea in '95 yeah. with like two hundred thousand people. Yeah. It was WCW, which was Turner's group. It was Ino- New Japan and whoever else. This one was WCW, uh, New Japan, uh, and some of the, and uh, CMLL in Mexico or maybe AAA. So it was Mexico, Japan, and America wow. all combined, and each guy sent. Each company sent a couple matches in, yeah. and somehow I don't know. How, like I said, somehow weaseled my way on the show, and uh, flew myself in and got on it, and was seen by Eric Bischoff, who was running the company at the time. Amazing, and that's how I got the gig. So. Yeah, amazing. Uh, last couple things: it, 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 was this the peak of Ali's celebrity? Do you think in America, or did he get even bigger after this? I think Thrill in Manila was his peak. Gotcha. Which that's was seventy-eight. That was seventy-five. That 75, was okay. so eight months before this match with the gotcha. Nokia. Um, October 75 I, I think that's it um, his match against George Foreman was huge you know the rumble in the jungle right. I mean that was that was massive and then for him to, to beat George Foreman and then two years later beat uh, Joe Frazier I think that was probably the peak of it did you ever meet him Ali um, I was in a room with him um, in some ways that's almost enough like yeah. you feel like you meet him and uh, it came across in so many ways as I talked to people for this book that when you did meet him, when you were around him, there was sort of just a genuine human to human connection. Didn't matter who you were on the other side. He did that with everybody. And for him, it was just a day in the life. You know, mm-hmm. he was Muhammad Ali. For that person, it was, oh, my God, I met Muhammad Ali, you know. And he, he, he loved that, and he played off that. My brother met him. Um, my brother is a, a pretty well-known um, yoga person. He's been top yoga people in the country for a long time. And he met Ali in the, eight, in the late 80s, early 90s. And yoga was just new at the time. And Ali, I guess, heard my brother talking about yoga. He said, yoga. And he waved my brother over here. Tell me about yoga. So he had a conversation with uh, Ali about it. Ali, at the end of it, was like, give my man your number. I'm going to call you in a couple of weeks. And my brother's like, okay, sure, right. You know, and two weeks later, a phone rings, and it's Muhammad Ali. And they have like a half-hour conversation. And he didn't know my brother from anybody. He just and wanted to learn about yoga? Just wanted to learn. I mean, that he was so curious and so genuine a person that way. And I've been saying this a lot, and I really mean it. I feel like we're privileged to have lived in the era of Muhammad Ali. Mm. Very unique person in our, in our human history. And, um, you know, you kinda, it's like you don't want to overstate it. And the, there's been so many usually influential people. But no, no one else like Muhammad Ali will, will walk the face of the earth, I think, as long as I'm around. Is he the most famous person, you think, in pop culture that was not Jesus? 
Jesus or somebody like that? Probably. I mean, maybe Michael Jackson. Yeah. I think those are your two. Yeah, probably. You know, whoever the Pope is at the time, but it's more like the Pope, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think, yeah. And that's, talking... and that's like, you know, gone away in, in yeah, some in sense. Yeah, this day and age. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think Ali, no question, you know, it was a different media age. All the media people covered him. He was the number one story. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how you get more famous than Muhammad Ali. Yeah, yeah. It's a great book, Josh. Ali versus Anoki, and uh, such a like you said, such an interesting moment in time that kind of gets un- underrated. I think for for its influence in entertainment, combat sports, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm glad you wrote it. Thank you so much, and thank you for coming up here. And um, really, I know how busy you are, man, and I, for well, taking the time. Appreciate hopefully, it. someday Ali Anoki uh, will slap us in the face, give us his fighting spirit. Yeah, I'd love to ask him some questions too. Why don't you see slap if we can me do in that. the face right now. <laughs> Just slap me. Ow! Yep, no problem. <laughs> What a great story uh, with Josh Green talking about Ali versus Anoki. If you want to read more, get a copy of his great book, Ali versus Anoki, The Forgotten Fight That Inspired Mixed Martial Arts and Launched Sports Entertainment. It's available on Amazon, including in Japan now. So much more in the book that we couldn't cover in this hour-long show. Pick up a copy, enjoy the stories. Thanks again to Josh, and uh, once again, amazing uh, history there, Ali versus Anoki. And Bruno Sammartino uh, on, on, on Wednesday. It's been like a 70s wrestling uh, combat sports week here on top is Jericho. That's what I bring to you. It's a lot of great stories. Speaking of great stories, some true and some ridiculous, uh, how about Team Tiger Awesome and their stories? This is the news with Team Tiger Awesome. In local human monster news, a human monster at the grocery store today ate a grape straight from the produce bin. This may be related to last week's incident where a human monster didn't clean up after his dog. Authorities would like to remind you, if you see this human monster, do not attempt to engage, as he is probably... The worst. This week in Northern Ireland, a man rescued a cat that had managed to get stuck between two walls. And you guys, it was adorable. And now the weekly Slant Rhyme Report. Soups up, scoots up, three spots to five. Porous is still what four is. Mystery shifts to three. Nobody threatened to take over second. And It's No Croc is still on top. More really stupid news listen to the team tiger awesome show every sunday on the jericho network right here on podcast one there you go go subscribe to the team tiger awesome show at apple podcast be sure to leave them a five-star rating and review leave all the jericho network podcast five-star ratings and reviews if you can killing the town with storm and cyrus a uh, great uh, conversation this week uh, as always with storm and cyrus talking about uh, uh money in the bank reviewing it the psychology behind it talking to michael elgin a uh, great interview with him rock talk with mitch lafon mitch had a interview on with gene simmons that he did when he was like 13 years old. Great piece of business. The Raven Effect. Raven's talking about cocaine. He's talking about uh, Nazis. He's talking about battle royals. He's talking about wrestling psychology. It is a great show. If you haven't checked out The Raven Effect, you're really missing out. And of course, keeping it 100 with Conan. Ted Irvin back again this week talking more NHL stories and about a young Chris Jericho. Beyond the Darkness. Get your paranormal fix every weekday with brand new episodes that scare the crap out of you Monday to Friday. And if you want to be more intrigued and want like some mysteries, uh, true mysteries, you can get in on uh, Beyond the Darkness as uh, Dave Schrader and Tim Dennis uh, have done True Crime Tuesdays. It's a weekly true crime podcast. You get that only on Tuesday by signing up at patreon.com. Just five bucks a month and you'll get a new episode every single Tuesday and the episodes are commercial free. No commercials. Sin commerciales. So sign up now at patreon.com. It's a great show as well. One last thank you to you for listening to this show and thanks to all this episode's tremendous sponsors. Talking about DDP Yoga, go to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. 
Get 20% off the DDP Yoga Now app and all DDPY-related merch uh, alone on history. Check out new episodes on Thursdays. What a riveting uh, reality show that is, and that's real reality on history. And, of course, True Car, cheaper, easier, quicker, faster, truecar.com. Thank you for listening. Keep listening for the 60-second AP News headlines coming up next and coming up on Wednesday. The brand-new 2017 Money in the Bank briefcase winner, Baron Corbin, is here. And why wouldn't he be? He only lives two street, uh, two houses down from me. So great conversation with Baron Corbin. Get ready for that. And in the meantime and in between time, have a great weekend. Stay cool. Stay hard. Stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs. And a big yeah, boy. Listen to new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday on the Podcast One app. Or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com.